We have come into this room of hope, where our hearts and minds are open to the future. We've come into this room of justice, where we set aside our fear to name freely every oppression. We've come into this room of love, where we know that no lives are insignificant. We've come into this room of song, where we unite our voices in the sombre and the beautiful melodies of life. It is said that our worship should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I say we are all afflicted and we are all comfortable sometimes. May this time together this morning be both a comfort and a confrontation. May we here find peace in times of tumult. May we here invite tumult into lives of peace. May we find calm in times of restlessness. May we here allow restlessness to evolve into action. Let this be the place you consider what you've never considered. The place you imagine for yourself something new and unthinkable. May this hour bring dreams of new ways of being in the world. Let's worship together. Well, good morning everyone and welcome. Welcome to worship here at Essex Church. I'm glad to see you here this morning, each and every one of you. It takes some effort to get out of bed on a warm day like this. Together we who gather form this community of Kensington Unitarians. Your presence here matters. This church exists because of those who show up and keep on showing up, who contribute to community life in so many different ways. This community is enriched by our wider connections, with all those friends scattered far and wide by the demands of modern life, those who listen to our podcasts and still feel part of this community. It's strengthened by connectedness across time to all those good people who came this way before us and all those who will follow in the years to come. If you're here for the first time today, you are most welcome. Make yourselves at home. I hope this morning offers something of which you came here seeking. If you're a regular here, thank you for making this a hospitable place with a truly open door. I see and appreciate your human warmth, your care and generosity in sharing this, your spiritual home. Whoever you are, however you are, wherever you are on your journey of life, we're glad to have you here today. And please do stay for tea and a chat afterwards if you can. going to light our chalice flame as is our custom. This simple ritual carried out by Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists the world over, it connects us in solidarity with progressive people of faith the world over and reminds us of the proud historic religious tradition of which we are a part. We light this chalice in remembrance of the courage of those who have struggled for freedom, the persistence of those who have campaigned for justice, and the love of those who have built beloved communities just like this one to carry on the light of hope. Let's take those joys and concerns into a time of prayer and reflection now. I suggest we take a moment to get ourselves into the right frame of body and mind for, for an extended period of prayer.
May the spirit of life and love bless our gathering this morning as we attend to matters of ultimate concern and sense the presence of God amongst us in this place of sanctuary, our spiritual home. In the quiet of this hour, may each person find what they most need. May the anxious find steadiness. May the sorrowful find consolation. May the isolated find a sense of connectedness. May the glad find comrades to share their good cheer. May the confident find moments of challenge and growth. May the lost begin to find their way once again. As we look back over the past week, let's silently give thanks for those joys and pleasures we've known. Moments of love, friendship and camaraderie. Experiences of wonder and delight, reassurance and relief. Bursts of playfulness, spontaneity and generosity. Feelings of achievement, creativity and flow. All those times when we felt most alive and awake. Let us also ask for the consolation, forgiveness and guidance we may need as we acknowledge our sorrows and regrets. Those times of loss, pain, anger and fear. Periods of uncertainty and anxious waiting. Realisation of our own weaknesses, mistakes and failings. Awareness of missed opportunities, those things we left unsaid or undone. Expanding our circle of concern, let us bring to mind those people, places and situations that are in need of prayer right now and hold them in the light. Remembering those people we know to be suffering, maybe friends, family or loved ones, those closest to our hearts. Maybe to those we find difficult, with whom we're in need of reconciliation. Maybe those we don't know so well, that we've only heard about on the news. All those places around the world and on our doorstep where there's violence or instability. And let us also remember those who are striving to bring justice and peace. God of all love, we offer up our joys and concerns, our hopes and our fears, our beauty and our brokenness. And we call on you for insight, healing and renewal. As we look forward to the coming week, help us to live well each day and be our best selves, using our unique gifts in the service of love, justice and peace. Amen. This is the story of Oscar Romero. Some of you will probably already know something of his story. 
For others, this will be the first time you've heard of him. The story of his life and death provides a window into the circumstances in which liberation theology emerged and briefly flourished, though Romero wasn't exactly a liberation theologian himself. The picture on the front of today's order of service is a mural by the Chicana artist Juana Alicia, a tribute to Romero, entitled No One Should Comply with an Immoral Law. Be aware that this story I'm about to tell is a bit longer than our usual readings, but it's a story worth hearing, so settle in. Oscar Romero was born in El Salvador just over 100 years ago in 1917. He grew up in a Catholic household and at the age of 13 he told his family he wanted to be a priest. He excelled in his studies and in fact had to wait a year after he'd finished with seminary training before he could start work as he was still slightly too young to be ordained. His ordination eventually took place in Rome when he was 25. He returned to El Salvador to serve first as a parish priest and then as rector of a seminary before he was appointed Bishop of Santiago de Maria, a poor rural area in the mid-1970s. A few years later, in 1977, he was appointed Archbishop of San Salvador. At this time, he had a reputation as quite a conservative, and his appointment was welcomed by the government. However, the more radical and progressive priests, those who were influenced by liberation theology and who considered the government to be violent and oppressive, would at this point have been disappointed by the appointment of a figure like Romero. But then everything changed. Less than a month after his appointment as Archbishop, a close personal friend of Romero's, the Jesuit priest Rutilio Grande, was assassinated. Grande had been working with the rural poor and marginalised, encouraging them to organise and work for social transformation, for land reform and workers' rights. He spoke about the injustices and abuses carried out by the oppressive government at that time. Rutilio Grande was, in a modest but courageous way, doing the hands-on work of liberation theology. And we'll hear more about exactly what this is in the sermon later on. And he was shot dead by government security forces for his trouble, for his work trying to empower the nation's poor. Grande's assassination had a profound impact on his friend Archbishop Romero, who later stated... When I looked at Rutilio lying there, dead, I thought, if they have killed him for doing what he did, then I too have to walk the same path. This dramatic turn of events seemed to shake him out of his naturally cautious temperament. Romero urged the government to investigate his friend's death, but they ignored his pleas and the censored press remained silent. From this point on, Romero began to speak out against the oppression he saw all around, social injustice, poverty, assassinations and torture. And in 1979, a military dictatorship came to power, bringing a further wave of human rights abuses by paramilitaries and the government. 
During these tough years, Romero built up an enormous following of listeners to his weekly radio sermons and speeches. Each Sunday, he listed the latest violent events and disappearances of ordinary people, which were not publicly acknowledged anywhere else. In 1980, speaking to an international conference, Romero attempted to capture the world's attention, saying, There have been threats, arrests, tortures, murders, numbering in the thousands. That part of the church that put itself on the side of the people and went to the people's defense has been persecuted. And the key to understanding the persecution of the church is the poor. On the 23rd of March, 1980, Romero delivered a sermon in which he called on Salvadoran soldiers, as Christians, to obey God's higher order and to stop carrying out the government's repression and violations of basic human rights. The following day, as he was celebrating Mass with the patients of a small hospice, a car pulled up outside the chapel and a gunman got out. Romero was shot in the heart and left to die. A quarter of a million mourners attended his funeral, and at least 30 people were killed in shootings of the assembled crowds. If you want to know more about his story and the situation in El Salvador at the time, you might want to watch the eponymous feature film Romero. Oscar Romero has been recognized as a martyr of the Catholic Church and will be canonized as a saint this October. This short reading is by the American Unitarian Universalist minister David Rankin. It's probably worth noting that it was published about 17 years ago, well before the era of Trump, and perhaps some of his idealistic words about faith in politics will feel a bit harder to swallow right now than they would have done at the time he first wrote it. Still, this meditation on the ways in which church could and should relate to politics and worldly concerns gives us plenty to think about as a kind of Unitarian take on liberation theology. I believe in the art of politics to improve conditions, to assure self-government, to maintain a democratic society, but I also believe in the spirit of religion to be free, to stir the conscience, to breathe without the chains of oppression. I believe in the vocation of politicians to make peace, to effect compromise, to smooth the pursuit of happiness. But I also believe in the calling of clergy to seek truth, to serve the highest, to spread the gospel of liberation. I believe in the power of the state to combat crime, to encourage education, to devise projects of mutual assistance. But I also believe in the mission of the church to embody love, to side with the weak, to awaken the hearts of people.
now come to a time of meditation. You might want to have a wiggle at this point and get as comfortable as you can in your chair. Put down anything you don't need to be holding. Perhaps put your feet flat on the floor. You might want to close your eyes or focus on the candles in the centre. I'm going to read some words to take us into the meditation. It's a, it's a prayer poem from uh, the Catholic Bishop Ken Untener, which was written around the time of Oscar Romero's death and has often been wrongly attributed to Romero, which is how I chanced across it in the first place. These words reflect on the struggle to bring about a more just world, to help bring about the kingdom of God, as he puts it. After these words, they'll have a few moments of silence and stillness together. Um, you're free to think your own thoughts. These words are just an offering for you to do with as you will. And after those few minutes of silence, I'll ring our bell to bring it to a close. It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds that were already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realising that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. This is the second service 
in our monthly ministry theme of freedom and liberation. And I'm going to do my best in the next 12 minutes or so to give you a whistle-stop tour through the origins and the evolution of the movement known as liberation theology. I'll try and tell you a little bit about where it's at in the present and why we Unitarians should care. Liberation theology emerged in the 1960s in Latin America. And although that was its moment, in the 60s and 70s, perhaps into the 80s a bit, to understand its origins and its popularity at that time and in that place, we need to bear in mind the best part of 500 years of suffering that preceded it. There was the horrendous treatment of the native population by the colonial powers, Spanish and Portuguese, that had arrived from Europe. Exploitation of the people, the land, the resources, the suppression of native culture and religion as the various settled societies were converted largely by force to Christianity. By the mid-20th century, there were a number of military dictatorships in the region, and civil rights and human rights were curtailed, or at least under threat, in a lot of places. Poverty was widespread, though there were aristocracies who were doing very all right for themselves. The contrast between the haves and the have-nots was getting increasingly stark. That's the backdrop, that's the context to the emergence of liberation theology in Latin America. Now, there are a few theologians who are collectively credited as its founders. Gustavo Gutierrez of Peru, Leonardo Boff of Brazil, Juan Luis Segundo of Uruguay. But Gutierrez in particular has often been called the father of liberation theology, so I'll focus on just one or two of the influential ideas that he stood for. The concept that Gutierrez popularised is known as the preferential option for the poor. This phrase, which you could almost count as the slogan of liberation theology, springs out of the idea that God was revealed in the Bible as constantly favouring the poor and the powerless in society, the people who are marginalised in various numerous ways, those seen as needy, insignificant, unimportant, even despised and defenceless. And even outside of liberation theology, this is a, a major theme in the Christian Church's social teachings. The moral test of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. You can point to the words of prophets to back this up. Indeed, that hymn that we just sang, What Does the Lord Require?, is largely based on the words of the Old Testament prophet Micah. We sang, True justice always means defending of the poor, the righting of the wrong, reforming ancient law. This is the path. True justice do, love mercy to, and walk with God. And Jesus himself taught that God will ultimately ask each person what they did during the course of their life to help the poor and the needy, famously saying, whatever you did for the least one of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Think too of the Beatitudes, blessed be the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Within the Christian tradition, this emphasis on concern for the marginalised is well grounded. And yet, this hasn't always been reflected in the conduct of the church, the institution itself. Too often, the institutional church has cozied up to money and power and turned a blind eye to injustice in its many forms. So liberation theology might be thought of as a reaction against the church which had, in some sense, gone astray as an institution and departed from this core principle. It focuses on the notion that care for the poor, powerless and marginalised should be at the very heart of the Christian mission. And it focuses on praxis, putting theory into practice, putting tradition in dialogue with hands-on action, instead of simply pontificating about the value of theology in ivory towers while people go hungry. 
I should say that's not to dismiss theology or tradition or scripture. One of the key activities of liberation theology, in fact, was to organise what they called Christian-based communities. These were grassroots gatherings of ordinary people, not specialist scholars, uh, often set up in neglected rural areas where people were encouraged to study the gospel in the light of their own experience, to see how it spoke to their own disadvantaged condition. It was contextual. Reading the stories and parables, they began to ask themselves, how does the Christian message speak to the harsh realities of my everyday life? The intention, the intention behind these communities was that lay people should get to grips with the Bible and read it through the lens of liberation so that it would strengthen and inspire them to get actively involved in bringing about social change. And this is the work that Oscar Romero's friend, Rutilio Grande, was doing at the time when he was assassinated. It helped ordinary people feel that they were justified in resisting the oppression they faced instead of just accepting their lot fatalistically because in some sense God was on their side, on the side of the oppressed. And these grassroots communities helped them to practically structure and organise that resistance. This was liberation theology in practice. At last count, about a decade ago, it was reckoned that something like 80,000 of these base Christian communities still exist in Brazil alone. And they're credited by some, at least, as having helped the transition from military to democratic rule, uh, in part by contributing to uh, public health and education projects. So what's not, like, what, what's not to like? Well, the rise of liberation theology was not universally welcomed, of course. Conservative theologians, in particular, questioned the extent to which it was theologically justified. People in power, perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't like it much. They argued that the church should butt out of politics altogether and stick to purely spiritual concerns. The neighbours upstairs in the United States certainly didn't want a Marxist-influenced movement taking hold on their doorstep. And the hierarchy of the Catholic Church at that time were very wary about endorsing liberation theology too. Pope John Paul was certainly worried about the whiff of communism and called in Joseph Ratzinger, who was later Pope Benedict, to be his enforcer in a drive to crack down on liberation theology in the Catholic Church. Prominent figures such as Gutierrez were banned from attending major international church conferences, although they had their allies and advocates who attended and tried to keep the spirit of his message alive. Over time, the profile of liberation theology has faded somewhat, and you might say that its decline has occurred in parallel with the decline of communism after the fall of the Berlin Wall since the 1980s. But it seems that the current Pope, Pope Francis, who hails from Argentina, has taken a more conciliatory tone, perhaps reflected by the fact that Romero is going to be uh, made a saint later this year. Pope Francis, before he became Pope, was quoted as saying, The option for the poor comes from the very first centuries of Christianity. It is the gospel itself. If you were to read one of the sermons of the first fathers of the church from the second or third centuries about how you should treat the poor, you'd say it was Trotskyist. The church has always had the honour of this preferential option for the poor. It's Pope Francis. And that's one way of looking at liberation theology, as an attempt to return to the ways of the small, decentralised, agile and adaptable early Christian communities. Have a read of the Book of Acts, if you haven't already. A lot of those accounts of the early church sound pretty communist to me too. Yet over the centuries, as Christendom has evolved away from its original form, and biblical interpretation has become entangled with matters of power and control, those early expressions of Christianity have come to seem very distant from the church institutions of today. 
Now, up to this point, I've mainly spoken about liberal, liberation theology as something that arose in a certain place, Latin America, a certain time, the 60s and 70s, and largely within the context of the Catholic Church. So you might well wonder, what have Unitarians got to learn from this here and now? Well, there's a small hint I've given in the title I gave today's service. It's not liberation theology, singular, but liberation theologies, plural. In the years since Gutierrez and his comrades came to prominence, there's been a proliferation of different liberation theologies all around the world. And each one of these liberation theologies addresses a particular form of real-world oppression, an instance of power imbalance between the haves and have-nots, and lifts up the voice of this particular group which has been marginalised in society. Each flavour of liberation theology shared, focuses on the shared lived experience of suffering and disadvantage that this particular group has been ex- subjected to, and works out a viable theology in that context, seen through the eyes of each era's downtrodden and oppressed. Rather than leaving society's dominant groups to have a monopoly on interpreting the texts and the traditions of the church in their own interests, the religious tradition that was handed down the theory, if you like, has to be put into practice where the rubber hits the road, as the saying goes, if it's to have any real meaning for people, particularly people who are poor or powerless or struggling, just the people Christians are supposed to be caring about the most. One example to mention in brief, black theology was an example of liberation theology which arose in the States. Influential theologians such as James Cone, who sadly died just, just this year in his 80s, Uh, Theologians like James Cone applied the Christian message to the context of racial segregation, civil rights, and the political, social, and economic subjugation of African Americans. Writing in 1970, he said this, Black theology cannot accept a view of God which does not represent God as being for oppressed blacks and against their white oppressors. Living in a world of white oppressors, blacks have no time for a neutral God. The brutalities are too great and the pain too severe And this means we must know where God is and what God is doing in the revolution. End quote. Now these are strong words um, and they illustrate very powerfully how liberation theology works in another setting. This was written in the context of early 1970s America. The book was published just two years after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Cohn was working out a theology that made sense for people whose entire lives were shaped by their experience of racism every day both personal, everyday prejudice, structural biases built into the very fabric of society. Black liberation theology, written by black theologians, was intended to support black people in overcoming oppression. And the same goes, an equivalent story could be told for all the other liberation theologies, feminist theology, Asian theology, disabled theology, queer theology. Each one of those is working on finding new ways to put scripture, tradition, theology in context with real lived experiences of those groups who have had a rough deal in our world. In this way, the church becomes a genuine, live, practical force for good in their lives. The original liberation theology as it arose in Latin America was focused largely on socio-economic oppression, the deprivation of money, land and resources, but there are so many other axes of oppression in our world. And it seems with each year that passes, we have our attention drawn to new instances of people being marginalised, exploited, and disadvantaged in ways too numerous to count. Those core religious messages which have been handed down to us, whether it's the scripture and tradition that we've inherited from our Christian forebears, the calls from Jesus and prophets to attend to the poor, the powerless, or the principles and values of our more recent Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist history, 
the commitment to justice, equality and the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Well, liberation theologies show us how these familiar religious messages can truly come alive. In any situation we can ask, who is being unfairly treated? Who is the underdog? Who's getting a rough deal these days through no fault of their own? And perhaps our answers to these questions will, will reveal another strand of liberation theology just waiting to happen. Amen. Spirit of life and love, God of all nations, there is so much work to do. We've only just begun to imagine a world of justice and mercy. Help us hold fast to our vision of what can be. May we see the hope in our history and find the courage and the voice to work for that constant rebirth of freedom and justice. That's our dream. May it be so for the greater good of all. Amen.